um, is still preaching this morning in Birmingham. Uh, we're going to find our text this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, if you want to go ahead and be turning there. We're continuing a series that we're doing on core values of grace. Uh, it's entitled, We Are Grace, this sermon series we've kind of made it a practice to do every January um, over the last few years. And um, this month, we're focusing on our core value of relationship. And uh, Chad has already preached the last two weeks on this core value, relational discipleship, making disciples of those around us. And as we look at our text today, we'll look at relationship as an act of giving rather than receiving. Oftentimes when you hear us discuss from the platform or in smaller venues uh, the idea of relationship or community and fellowship within the church, uh, we talk about it from an angle of felt needs. We will often talk about, uh, talk about it in a way that says you need community, you need accountability, um, you need encouragement from other believers. Uh, these kind of sentences and things that will, these phrases that we'll use address the felt needs of the individual who needs community. We were created for community. We were created for others, but we don't often talk about what our Lord said in Acts 20, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The problem with talking about relationship and community um, from a felt needs perspective is twofold. Number one, if you don't feel the need for those things, they seem unimportant. If during the week you're like, well, I've been with people all week, I'm exhausted by them, and I just don't need people this week, I've been around plenty of people, then it's really easy to not show up to your life group meeting or your discipleship group. I've, I've had plenty of interaction with people this way. I had a great conversation with coffee over a friend the other day who encouraged me in the scriptures. And so I don't need life group today. It also goes against what Jesus has said to his followers that is more blessed to give than to receive. And we often talk about this in relation to giving of gifts, right? When Christmas comes around, I'm sure many parents have told their children, it's better to give than to receive. You may think about that text as we've just come out of the Christmas season. But Jesus wasn't just talking about in the giving of gifts that it's better to give than to receive. He's talking about our very lives we're critical here. Uh, when I say we, I mean our leadership and, and probably many of you were critical of consumer Christians in almost every aspect of church life. We say people shouldn't choose a church based on what they're going to get from that church, be it their preference with musical styles or their preaching style, or, or whatever your pet thing is. We're critical of Christians who are only in the church and only attend a certain church because of what they consume and what their preferences are. But for some reason, when it comes to talking about your need to be in a life group or a discipleship group or in the corporate worship gathering, our language somehow reflects this consumerism. We tend to talk about it from the perspective of what you get out of 
attending a life group, what you get out of going to a discipleship group. So this morning, I want to flip the script on us and focus on what is required of you in relationships, not just what you get from them, but what is required of you. And the kind of relationships to which God has called us as his children. The kind of relationships that God has called us to as ministers. Because we read the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 and he says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. So you, believer in Jesus, are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has called you to relationship. God has called you to other people. God has called us to be ministers of the gospel for the building up of the body. And it's our job as elders and pastors here at Grace to equip you to do just that. So our text this morning, 1 Thessalonians 2, we read the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians just a few minutes ago. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica in response to Jews that are trying to convince these believers that Paul's ministry was just a way to make money and gain popularity, that his message was false. These people in Thessalonica had become believers as Paul, Timothy, and Silas had visited them. The gospel was preached and we read in chapter 1 that it came with power and the Holy Spirit took hearts of stone and turned them into hearts of flesh. And as Paul is writing this letter, he is arguing against what these Jews who are accusing him of greed and trying to, to get money from these people, some kind of extortion... He's arguing against that, and rather than appeal to his doctrine, as Paul often does, or his teaching, he appeals to his character and his deeds when he was with them, the way he carried himself while he was among them. So he doesn't go to doctrine, he doesn't go to teaching, he doesn't start explaining justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He doesn't do that. He says instead over and over again, you know that's not true. Have you ever done this with someone? <laughs> Some rumor is floating around about you or you're accused of something that you didn't do and your reply to anyone who will hear you is, you saw what I did. You know me better than that. You know how I carry myself. That's exactly what this letter that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians is. You, you know me. In fact, he says it multiple times to these brothers and sisters throughout chapter 2. He says in verse 1, you yourselves know. Verse 2, as you know. Verse 5, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, as you know. So Paul is appealing to what they know about his character, what they know about how he worked among them. And the central verse that I believe gets at the heart of what he communicates to them is found in verse 8. Look with me at verse 8. 
We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. I'm going to read through this entire chapter beginning in verse 1. But as we walk through the text today, all of it will kind of center around verse 8. Beginning in verse 1. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, and just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God, who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others, Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we wouldn't burden any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You were witnesses. And so is God of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Your translation might say selves or souls. It really does carry with it the, the emphasis of soul. We, we cared for you so much that we were pleased to share with you our very souls, the very core of who we are. We wanted to bear it all before you because you had become so dear to us. How many of us can think of a person or persons that we care about so much that they know everything about us. Maybe for you, that's your spouse. The follower, followers of Jesus are called to this kind of relationship, that we would share our own souls, our own lives, that we would be an open book to the people around us. And as I say that, you probably have Questions already stirring in your mind about what will people think of me if I share my own life, if they know everything about me. And Paul gives us some answers in this text about what it means to share our own lives and what it's going to require to share our lives because he gives an example of himself of how he shared his own life with these believers in Thessalonica. So there are seven points this morning, and we're going to start 
at the top in verse 2, giving our lives requires us to take great risk. To take great risk. Verse 2, you see, on the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. Paul and Silas had just been in jail in Philippi, had been treated miserably for their preaching of the gospel. And Paul is telling these believers in Thessalonica that that didn't stop us from coming to you. Even though we were persecuted and had suffered and were thrown in jail and treated miserably by these people, and even probably on his way to Thessalonica was followed by people out of Philippi taunting him, It didn't stop him or hinder him from coming to them. He was willing to take the risk and go anyway. In fact, he says, we were emboldened by God to speak the gospel in spite of great opposition. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are risking their own lives to go and share the gospel rather than calling it quits. Being an authentic, life-giving relationship requires us to take risk. It's something that we don't talk a lot about in 21st century America, but risk-taking is essential to living up to our calling. You might open up in a group and share something that's really difficult for you, and someone may treat it in a clear manner, or someone might say something insensitive, or it might... Leave that group and be shared with someone else. And so anytime we open our mouths and open up our lives to other people, we are taking a risk of getting hurt. We're taking a risk of being talked about. We're taking a risk of being thought poorly of. But Paul and Jesus are telling us it's a risk worth taking. It's a risk worth taking because our identity is not in what people think of us, but rather it is in Christ. Secondly, we must speak truthfully and uphold purity. We must speak truthfully and uphold purity. In verse 3, he says, For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Paul is saying, my doctrine is sound. My teaching is sound. I didn't come to you with a false message. The content of his teaching is true. It is the true gospel. But not only that, he said he didn't come to them with impurity. Now, what does he mean by that? Is he talking about purity of teaching? I don't believe so. This Greek word is only used one more time by Paul, and it's actually later in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. He says, For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses." As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, 
but to live in holiness. Paul is using this to talk about sexual purity. Our exhortation didn't come from error, but it also didn't come from impurity. He didn't use his platform as a teacher, as an apostle, as a pastor, to take advantage of men or women. There are people all over this world who wield great influence, and they use that influence to take advantage of women and men who might be subordinate to them. They seduce them into impure relationships. This is a warning to pastors. Paul is saying, don't let your influence lead you into sexual impurity. It's also a warning to you as ministers of the gospel, as we have been called, to not let the influence you have with others lead you into impurity. Be careful as to hand, how you handle yourself around others because as you bear your lives, as you share your life and your soul with others, there is a temptation to draw too close to people that you should not, in a way that you should not be close to them. Be above reproach. Stay out of late night conversations with someone that is not your spouse. Don't linger at the office into the evening with subordinates. We must reject false teaching and error. We also must reject impurity. Third, we have to reject man-pleasing. In verse 4, Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. We must not be more concerned with what our neighbor thinks of us than what God thinks of us. Personally, this is one of my biggest struggles. I like to please people. I'm the first child. And if you're a first child, you are probably familiar with this struggle. Many first children like to please mom and dad. But in reality, we are all selfish people pleasers. We like people to like us. We like people to be happy with us. Maybe you're the exception to that rule and you just like to be a jerk and like everybody to not like you. And you wear that as a badge of honor. Don't be that guy. But if I'm not careful, I find myself making all of my decisions through the lens of what others will think of me. Every week when I get ready to plan our worship service and think through the songs that we will sing, I have to fight the urge to pick songs that will make me look good and sound good. I had to fight that in prayer, preaching this sermon this morning and preparing this sermon. My mind often goes to how will it be received versus what is God saying in the text. 
You may struggle with this in your relationships. You edit your speech depending on who you're talking to. You'll share something with one person that you would not share in the same way with another. In your life group, you're not open to confessing sin because you're more worried about what they will think of you than being open and honest. Now, this is not a license to be a jerk. I reject man-pleasing. I tell everybody what I think. No filter whatsoever, preacher. I'm living it. Yeah, don't be a jerk. But we need to be honest with one another. We need to understand our identity in Christ and speak truth in spite of opposition. And today, as we talk about cancel culture and things going on on social media and elsewhere in our society, we can often find ourselves editing the truth of God so that we won't get canceled or we won't look down, be, be looked down upon. And the scriptures are calling us to something higher, to reject man-pleasing and speak truth and love. He continues that we should put away flattery and greed. Verse 5. We never used a flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. John Piper, who I listened to and, and read through a sermon that he had preached on this text, he says, Flattery is using language not for the sake of truth, but for the sake of manipulation. Say that again. Flattery is using language not for the sake of truth, but for the sake of manipulation. You want something. You want something from the person that you're speaking to, and so you flatter them with your words to manipulate them, to get out of them what you want. Moms, you're familiar with this, right? You're in the kitchen cooking dinner, getting ready for for the meal and your son or daughter walks in all lovey and huggy. Mom, I love you so much. You're so pretty. Have I told you that lately? This food smells amazing. And what is mom's first question? What do you want? But see, we're, we're really good sinners. And so while a child may say those kind of things to their mom, and mom can spot it from a mile away, as you grow older, your sin becomes more sophisticated. And so you begin to have conversations with your boss about the things he likes, because if you can build a relationship with him, he might just give you a promotion. You start to edit the things you say around him, to manipulate him into believing you're something you're not so that you can get something from him or her. Paul has been accused by these people in Thessalonica that his ministry was to get money from people, not to care for their souls, that he's after their money. 
many of us, maybe if you've grown up in the evangelical world or are super critical of televangelists who say things and who manipulate people through a television screen to get money. And that's what Paul is being accused of here, is that he just wants stuff from them. He doesn't actually care for their souls. But in verse 9, look what he says. You remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters. We worked day and night so that we would not burden any of you. We preached God's gospel. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And a worker is worthy of his wages. And as a teacher, he could have come to them expecting something from the church. The Bible tells us that we should pay those who give their time to preaching and teaching. But Paul says, I was so concerned that you not think I was in this for money that I worked late into the night building tents so that we would not be a burden to any of you. I wanted to stay as far away from the appearance of greed as possible. And so I worked among you, and you know this. Paul was there for the good of these people. He wasn't there to be served or to gain anything from them. He was there to give his own soul to them. And that is what we are called to, to put away the flattery of the people around us that might have influence to peddle. But to give our lives out to them for the sake of their soul. That we wouldn't look to gain from a relationship but to give. In verse 7, he says, you also must gently care for others like a mother. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, in verse 7, instead we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own children. As a nursing mother nurses her own children, Paul doesn't shy away from comparing himself to a mom who is nursing a child. He uses this term, a badge of honor, that I was like a mother for you. He cared so deeply for these people that he nurtured them like a mom nurtures her own children. As we think about a nursing mother, it should be a picture of selflessness. A baby demands constant attention from her mother. Every cry invokes a response from the mother, and the mother gets nothing in return. Babies spit up, they dirty their diapers, they cry when they're hot, they cry when they're cold. They scream when they're hungry, and they can do nothing to give back to their mother. All they do is take and take and take some more, and mom does nothing but give and give and give some more. 
And Paul is comparing himself among these people to a nursing mother. I was there to give my own soul. And I need nothing from you. You are going to spit up on me. You are going to cry when things don't go your way. You're going to be critical of me. And yet, my calling from God is to continue to give my soul to you. This is what we are called to in our relationships. We're to be like a mother caring for her child, constantly looking after the needs of others with no thought of what they can do for us. Philippians 2, Paul reiterates this point when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. We are called to pour our lives out for the sake of others. Six, we're to live holy and blameless lives. In verse 10, we see this. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. Now, this does not mean that they were sinless. And this is not urging you towards sinless perfection. The word blameless does not mean that in the original language. We've, we've seen this term used over and over in the Old Testament and the New about certain people, that they were blameless and holy. This is not calling us to sinless perfection because we would be dead in the water. There is no hope that we will be sinlessly perfect in this life. This is talking rather about living a life above reproach. Living a life above reproach. Living in such a way that your neighbor cannot say anything bad about you. Having a good reputation in your community. Not doing things that would cause people to question your motives. Is he just flattering me? Is she just trying to manipulate me into something? If they can ask that question, if they often ask that question, then you have not set the bar high enough in your life to live above reproach. Again, Paul keeps appealing to you know, you remember, you're witnesses of my life. This will require making hard choices. Choices that seem weird to a world that's looking on. Choices like turning off devices at certain times of the day. Choices like giving your passwords to your spouse. Things that seem weird to a watching world. Sarah and I last year began this adoption process and we were in training. And the conversation came to media and technology and devices. They were talking about privacy. Um, 
If a child in foster care comes into your home with a device, you are not allowed to take that device because it belongs to them. Um, and you are a temporary setting, most likely. And so they said the only rules that you can have for them are rules that already exist in your own house. So if you already have kids and their devices have to go away at a certain time, then you can implement that rule with them. And, and Sarah asked the question, we don't have kids, but we do have an open media policy. I have all of his passwords, and he has all of mine, and anytime I ask for his phone, he'll hand it over, and anytime he asks for my computer, I will show him the screen. And one of the trainers looked at us like we had five heads. And she said, I would never allow my husband to look at my stuff. And in that moment, we realized <laughs> Christian living is different than the world. The love of our spouse and the desire to live a life above reproach requires an openness that other people don't understand. We don't get privacy in our house. As brothers and sisters, we don't get privacy with one another. There is an accountability that we are called to that is above what the world would ever know or expect. Because we understand to live like Jesus brings the most joy and most satisfaction. And that will require me sacrificing privacy for my own joy for my own wholeness, for my own purity. So we live holy and blameless lives above reproach. And lastly, we encourage others like a father. Verse 11, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory Mothers tend to nurture and care for children naturally. It's just what they do. When a young child falls and scrapes their knee, they tend to run to mom for comfort. Fathers exhort them to be brave and to push on toward a goal or a pursuit. A mom will kiss the boo-boo and make it better. A dad will then pick you up and remind you what you were doing and where you were going and push you in that direction. Keep going. Paul implores these people to walk in a manner worthy of God, reminding them of the glory that awaits. He says, as a father, I wanted to encourage you and remind you of what the goal is, where we're going. And though you're going to suffer persecution and pain and, and you're going to feel abused by others, remember the goal. Keep your eyes on the glory that awaits you in the kingdom of God. He was a father to them. It's amazing. He was a mother and a father. This last year has been difficult. 
and detrimental in so many ways. We've seen the loss of jobs on a wide scale, sickness, death, political strife, families in turmoil, and yes, masks. But one of the most detrimental things that has happened this past year is that we have been isolated from one another. We have been made to fear other people. We have taken part in Zoom meetings and Google meeting conferences and streaming services. We've binged Netflix shows and started new hobbies at home. And we've become comfortable with social media as a way to build relationships. We've been made comfortable to be alone. But as we look to the Word of God, we must be reminded when all of this is over, we still have a calling, the calling to give our lives away. This is not an option for the follower of Jesus. And hear me, those of you watching at home, those of you here, I'm not criticizing anyone in the middle of the pandemic for choosing to stay home, for choosing to distance themselves from others. There is a love of neighbor issue in there, and I am happy for each person to follow their own conscience in that. What I am saying is that as things shift back to normal, as a vaccine rolls out, there is going to be a fight within your heart to stay in isolation. There is going to be a fight within you that says people are dangerous. They might give me something that could kill me. And for followers of Jesus, fighting that impulse is the only option. Because we have a higher calling. And just as Paul has said, remember the glory that awaits you in the kingdom of God. And don't listen to the lie from Satan that you have nothing to offer. Pastor, I don't go to life group. I don't have anything to say in life group. I sit there quietly. I don't have anything to add to the conversation. I don't have any talents or gifts. I'm not good with words. It takes me a while to form a sentence. By the very nature of belonging to Christ, you have everything to offer. He has called you. He has gifted you. He has adopted you. You have everything to offer in Jesus you must fight against your flesh that wants to turn inward and focus on self and look up and around to those God has called you to give yourself to. So, if you're not in a life group, I'd be remiss to not mention life groups. I would encourage you, you can find them on our website, you can find the contact information for all of our leaders there. You can find out when and where they meet. 
I would encourage you to be in allowing concerns over the virus. I would encourage you to move toward others, to give yourself for the glory of God and his kingdom that awaits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That we are not intended to live in isolation. That we are not intended to live this life alone. But you have called us to give our lives away. Father, I pray we would know the joy that comes from living out the calling that you have placed on our lives. I pray that we would repent from sin and letting personality tests define who we are. And that, God, you would remind us that we are yours first and foremost. We thank you for your son, for his resurrecting power. It's in his name we pray. Amen.